Would you pray with me? Father, we just want to take a few moments before we dive into your word to ask you uh, to do a work in us. It's your word. It's not ours. It's not mine. Um, We pray that you would speak to us this morning. We would leave here without any doubt that uh, you've given us uh, a sufficient word this morning uh, for how you want us to live, how you want to shape our faith. And we ask you to do that today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, My wife and I will, once in a while, periodically watch a cooking show where they compete with each other. And I don't know really why we watch it, because we're not really that into cooking, but once in a while we'll just pop in, and um, it's good, wholesome fun most of the time. And these cooks, they get together and they compete. This one particular episode, the judges brought in last season's champion, this guy defeated all of the other cooks. Now he has his own cookbook, and he's got his own restaurant, and his own catering business. They bring him in to show one of his special recipes. And they ask all the cooks to try to copy that recipe. He walks them through how to do it. Here's how I do it. I fold it like this. I cut it like that. I, I do this, and I do the other thing. I don't know what they do. He lays it all out for them, and the cooks have to try to copy that recipe. And one particular cook, he's a good cook, he's one of the leading candidates for winning the show, uh, the judges come over and notice he's not doing something right. One of those steps, he's not, he's not doing it the way that the champion chef told him to do it. He says, did he tell you to do it that way? No. Well, well then why are you doing that way? I just thought it'd be better. Well, when he finally presented his plate, the meat was dry, the food wasn't very good. I think you and I sometimes are trying to cook up the Christian life. And we read the Bible and we go to church and we know the the recipes that God puts out for living the way that God wants you to live. To live in a way that's worthy of the calling that He's given you. But there are those moments where we go, I know God said it this way, but I kind of think I'm going to do it that way. It may not be logical, You may not be able to argue why that's a better move, but it's just in the moment you just think that's going to be a better move. Most of the time it's because you're tired of waiting to see how that recipe is going to pan out. I remember going to a restaurant once that a friend of mine, he knew, my my friend knew the owner, and it was a Puerto Rican cafe uh, in the city. And he told me one day, he said, you know, all of the cooks in the kitchen are Mexican. And I said, well, that's strange. Why does he hire Mexicans to cook? Puerto Rican food. I'm offended. No, I wasn't offended. I said, why, why does he do that? That's interesting. And he said, because when he hires Puerto Rican cooks, they always have their mom's recipes in their heads. And they'll do a little bit of a smidgen of what they're used to doing. And he doesn't want that. He wants exact recipes. He wants guys to come in that know how to cook, that cook well, but don't know the recipe. And they'll follow it exactly the way he laid it out. That's what God wants from us. Do as I say. Listen to what I'm telling you. Because what I'm telling you is truth. But sometimes we look in our life and it's a little bit of a mess. And oftentimes it's easy to blame God and go, God, you know, I'm doing the Christian thing and things look a little derailed. But if we would have kept a journal and looked back on the decisions that we've made, I wonder how often we'll find decisions that we made that weren't according to the book. 
Decisions that we made in the moment that we thought, you know what, I know this isn't part of the recipe, but I think this might taste better. I think this might cook faster. I think this might be better. I want, I want to look at a story today uh, of Abram and uh, Genesis. And this story is going to capture what that's like when decisions are made that create a mess rather than trusting God's word. So turn with me to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. And we're in Genesis chapter 16. God renewed his covenant with Abram, his promise to Abram that he will have a son, that he and Sarai will have a a, a son. And even though they've doubted it in the past and they've sort of made a mess of things already, God renews that covenant with them and lets them know, hey, this is on me. This covenant is based on my ability to make this happen. That's what chapter, uh, the latter half of chapter 14 is about. God is saying, this isn't about whether you're going to be able to have a son. This has nothing to do with whether you think you can have a son. This has everything to do with, can I produce a son in you even though you're too old or even though you're not sure if it can happen? God promises that with a vision and, and all of these things in chapter 14 um, and into chapter 15. And then chapter 16. You fast forward, I'm sure it's not the next night from that vision and the renewal of that covenant. But sometime later, it says in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In other words, all these promises, God laid on the promise really thick, but so far, zero. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Now wives, you tell me if you think this is a good decision. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord said so, but he hasn't done it yet. So let's, make, let's change the recipe. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children from her. In other words, yeah, let's take a shot. Maybe that's the answer. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar can't win. (laughs) She's a servant. She's sort of forced into this situation. Uh, We don't really get Hagar's opinion here. I'm sure she had one, but she's not asked for it. She's just put into this situation. And then after being forced into the situation... Now her master, her boss, so to speak, Sarai, has contempt for her. Even though it was her plan, it worked. (laughs) It was a deviation from God's plan. And it worked in the sense that Hagar had a child, not in the sense of fulfilling the promise. And now now she has contempt for Hagar. She's, ugh, she's... She just can't look at her. She has contempt. She has uh, disdain. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me, wrong done to her, she's the one that started the mess, so 
Sorry, it's a piece of work. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. But she's saying, Hagar is the one that hates her. May the Lord judge between you and me. It's messing with her head now. Every time Hagar is feeding the child, she thinks that she's feeding the child with a glint in her eye like, you don't have one. Maybe that was a little bit true. We don't know. Maybe Hagar was catty like that. But what we do know is that Sarai started the mess and then now is realizing, wow, this is a mess. This is a problem. So she complains to her husband. She complains to Abram. And Abram said, verse 6, to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In other words, once Hagar became a wife to Abram, Hagar's status went up. And then it was, you know, the desperate housewives of, of the Oaks of Mamre or something like that. And so her status was elevated, and now Sarai is sort of like the second-hand wife. Even though she was the first wife, she's the wife that's still barren. And Hagar is the one feeding the child. Hagar is the one bearing the child. Um, she doesn't have the child yet. She's still pregnant at this point. And she complains to Abram. And Abram takes Hagar's status and puts it back down. No, she's still your servant. Do with her whatever you want to do. So behold, your servant's in your power. Do whatever. So Sarai dealt harshly with her. We don't know exactly what she did, but we can probably imagine... Um, that she just did not show her any favor whatsoever to the point where Hagar ran away. She fled. Now, isn't it just like God, that even when we make messes, for him to step in with grace, compassion, help? Because the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So he steps in gives her a promise, this is going to go well, you're going to have a son, he's going to become a nation, he's going to become a lot of people, there will be multitudes from this seed. And so he's comforting her, letting her know in her affliction, I know it's going to be a hard time, I know it's a mess, I know you're, you know, you're, uh, uh, Abram's wife, you know, she's giving you a hard time, Sarai is, she, she's contempt for you, go back, submit, deal with it, surrender to it, I'm promising you that your son is going to be healthy. His name is going to be Ishmael. And you're always going to remember that I listened to you when you were in trouble. Every time you call his name to come in to eat. But, verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That bit of news isn't the brightest spot in what the Lord is telling her. 
But what he's doing is making sure she understands that Ishmael's path is not going to be the path that he promised for Abram's seed. That seed was going to be a blessing to the world, and anyone that blessed that seed would be blessed, and anyone that cursed that seed would be cursed. That promise does not apply to Ishmael because Ishmael was not part of the plan. He's applying grace, but he's reaffirming the fact that this isn't the promise. I'm not going to change my plan because Sarai thought it was a, a better idea to do it this way, and then God acquiesces to our derailment of his plan. No. The plan that I initially said stays intact. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. She took it as comfort. She took it as God seeing her in her affliction. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Why do they do that? Because they want you to know this is a real place. This isn't fantasy land. This actually happened in geographical locations. These are real events. And... Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So here you have the complication. God has made the promise clear. But meh, we're going to do it this way. And it creates a mess. It creates uh, a horrible home situation. Now, when we look at a story like this, it's easy to go, man, why such a drastic turn? Why such a crazy uh, suggestion? Why don't you just get another wife and then have a child with her, and then that'll like be my child? And how in the world did you think that was going to work out? Well, when you're desperate for something to happen, sometimes you take desperate measures, especially when you don't trust that God is going to handle it. That's when we're most desperate. That's when we take things into our own hand. Why does this, why does this happen? Why did they do that? The answer is simple. The incredible nature of God's promise. That's why. God likes to issue promises that are difficult to believe. He just does. And he didn't tell them, I'm going to get you a two-bedroom house. Trust me. Okay. No, you're going to be really, really, really old walking like this, and then you're going to have a baby. What? That's incredible. Like, that's, almost, that's impossible to believe, right? But I want you to believe it, not because it's credible. I want you to believe it because I'm credible. And God is jealous for our faith. And our faith is small if it's easy believism. If it's something he puts out there and it's just easy. God wants to show off. God wants to show that he's powerful. You go, isn't being a show off wrong? Not if you're God. It's impossible for God to be arrogant. He is the best. He is powerful. He is awesome. He wants the world to know it. He wants us to sing it. He wants us to understand it. And there's no time to understand it better than when we trust God's word, even though, humanly speaking, it sounds impossible. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds laughable. It's funny because in this account, they laugh at God. If you look with me in verse... um, On the next chapter, chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, again reaffirming the promise that he's going to be the father of nations, that he's going to be the father of many generations. The sign of that covenant will be circumcision. That's in the beginning of chapter 17. 
Then again, he specifically promises Isaac's birth. Verse 15, changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And that kings of people shall come from her. Verse 17, how does Abraham respond? And you know, a lot of times you read in prophets, they fall on their face. John fell on his face dead, like he was dead in front of God. Remember Isaiah, flat on his face. All he could describe is the robe of, of God in the temple because he can't really look up. The angels have wings covering their faces and they're not sinful creatures. He can't look at this. He could barely describe the vision. He's flat on his face and he's ruined and he's, and he's broken. Well, Abraham falls on his face and laughed. In verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, ha, 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 you know. LOL. Shall a child be born to a man who was 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? Can you imagine the first trimester, the second trimester, the third trimester? She's only getting older. And Abraham said to God, God, I got a better idea. How about just take Ishmael? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And then God struck him with lightning. No, God is, once again, the patient, slow to anger God. And he steps in and says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, listen, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. He just reiterates the specifics of the promise again, even though it sounds insane to Abram. Abram doesn't want to go tell his friends. He doesn't leave this conversation and go text his buddies. It sounds nuts. It's laughable. Better be pretty funny if you laugh right in front of God. He fell on his face laughing. He thought it was hilarious. And God is like, I know we haven't been walking together all that long, but I'm not joking. It's a promise. And then you look further ahead. When he had finished talking, three men show up. And it's debated whether these three men represent the Trinity or one of them is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and, and two angels. Either way, they represent the Lord. And three men show up, and in chapter 18, they are welcomed into, uh, Abram welcomes them uh, to eat, uh, into his hospitality. And then in verse 9, they say, Where, where's Sarah, your wife? They knew about the name change, all that. And he said, she's in the tent. They're outside of the tent, eating. She's in the tent. But Sarah's at the door of the tent, listening while she's stirring the lentils or whatever, she's eavesdropping. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. In case you haven't figured it out yet, the author's saying, the way of women, that's a good way to put it, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, 
saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, hey, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year. Third time he specified the timeline for this. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, oh, I I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. said, no, but you did laugh. If you fast forward to chapter 21, they have Isaac as promised. And they name him Isaac, because Isaac means laughter. And ironically, in the joy of the birth, they're laughing, laughs of joy. But it's ironic because when they first heard that they would have him, or the specific timeline of it, they laughed laughs of mockery, of incredulity, of this is unbelievable. I can't believe that. It's funny. And God is like, no, don't laugh. Oh, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. <laughs> this, is, this is not something light. This is something... Sure. And I think the difference here, what God was communicating to Abram and well, to Abraham and to Sarah now, is you, you have a misunderstanding of what I'm saying. You think I'm giving you a prediction. I'm not giving you a prediction. This isn't a prediction. Sometime next year, you and I predict. We predict if our favorite team is going to win. We'll predict the weather. I was thinking of having a picnic next weekend. What do you think the weather is going to do? We'll try to predict it. But that's, a, that's our best guess. And if it comes true, we go, wow, how did you know? Well, you can say whatever you want at that point. But it doesn't mean you made it happen. A promise is different from a prediction because God is not looking into the future and going, what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, I see that that's going to happen. I'm foreseeing that this is going to happen. Hey, by the way, I'm seeing that this is going to happen. That's not what he's telling them. He's telling them, I'm going to do this in a way that only God can. I can tell my kids, hey, we're going to go to great America tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and I can mean it. But then there's a, a tornado or great America's closed. I wake up, I'm super sick. Who knows? I can try to predict, I can say I'll try my best, but I can't promise. I can't promise the way God can. And what God is trying to communicate to them is when I tell you something is true, it's not true because I'm guessing it's true. It's not going to happen because I'm hoping it's going to happen. It's going to happen because I'm going to do it. And when you laugh at it, what you're doing is you're questioning my ability to accomplish what I'm telling you I'm going to do. And what God is trying to communicate to them is, I am over the laws of nature. I am over the laws of physics. I am over biology. I am over science. I am over everything. I can break the rules because I made them. So this isn't my best guess. This isn't a, a hopeful wish. This is a promise. And what he's asking them to do is, instead of making a mess with your life, by taking matters into your own hands. Instead of making a mess with your life by making decisions on your own, surrender those decisions to me and trust that what I'm telling you is true and things will go better for you. When it seems like it's not happening, don't take drastic measures 
and make a mess of your life. Wait for things to happen the way God told you they will happen. Now, of course, when we do that, we have to immediately think of the fact that we don't know everything. In other words, if God came to you and said, you're going to marry so-and-so, that'd be a very specific promise. And sometimes we look through the Bible for specifics. Should I take this job? Let me look in Proverbs. Should I marry this woman? Let me look in Second Chronicles. I don't know. But the Bible doesn't normally work that way. He wants you to latch on to the grand promises. He wants you to latch on the promises that along the way, if you don't hold on to that promise, you'll derail yourself in those specifics. I'll give you some examples. This one's an easy one. Jesus is preaching to his disciples. And he tells them they shouldn't worry. You guys worry a lot. And look at us today. Are we very much different? We take pills because we worry. Right? We bite our nails because we worry. We eat food because we worry. We drink because we're, we worry. We're constantly in an anxious people because we're out of control. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if we're going to have our job. We don't know if that person's going to break up with me or <laughs> whatever is going to happen. We, we're not sure. We're, we're constantly unsure. And Jesus taught his disciples, hey, that's sin. Don't worry. Because you see how God takes care of the sparrows and you see how God takes care of the lilies of the field. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, if you're going to have clothes, if you're going to have shelter. All those basic necessities in life, trust God with that. So instead of compromising at work to try to get that promotion, compromising your morals to try to get that better corner office or something because you think that's going to help secure your house, trust that God's going to secure your house and then make a decision based on that. It's not wrong to take a corner office. But don't climb after it and claw after it or cut somebody else down or lie a little bit on your resume because you're trying to secure a house. Let God take care of that. God wants us to be truthful and love our neighbor, not cut them down so we can get ahead. So what's the issue there? When we worry, we're basically saying, God, I'm, I'm unsure of how you're going to look out for me tomorrow. So let me just do this here, over here. Let me just adjust the recipe right here. I know normally I wouldn't lie, but just in, case, in this particular instance, to secure tomorrow, let me do this little thing. It just makes a mess. It just makes a mess. When we look at this promise, and we think of other areas like Marriage. You know, maybe you're raising a teenager or you remember when you were a teenager or maybe you're dating now, I don't know, whatever your situation is. And Remember that person that you know isn't right for you? You know they don't match the, the, biblical, the biblical portrait of somebody who's after God, who worships him, who obeys him, who trusts him. You know this person isn't like that. But look, you're getting older. You thought it was going to be in college. It didn't happen. You're kind of looking for a job, whatever you're doing. And you're like, you know what? Ah, let me just marry her. Ah, let, me just, let me just marry him. Rather than kind of waiting for God to answer that question for you, waiting for someone that matches what God lays out as someone who's uh, compatible with you if you are a man or a woman that's after God's heart. Someone does something to wrong you. 
You take vengeance. See, there, there it pops up again. God tells us, don't take vengeance. I'm going to take care of it. Don't take matters into your own hand. Leave room for me to take it into my hands. Right? The Bible's pretty clear about that. Revenge is not for you. I take vengeance. I'm going to settle accounts. You don't pay back. You can pay back with good. Don't pay back with evil. I'm going to take care of judgment. I'm going to take care of that. But when we hold grudges or hold things against people, when the thing that your husband did 20 years ago pops out of your mouth, even though you said you've forgiven him, but you're kind of upset because he didn't do the dishes, and you're like, yeah, you're lazy. That's why you lost that job 15 years ago. What are you doing? Taking stabs. Because it's not fair. It's not fair he did that to me. It's not fair that happened to me. And I got to get him back. And I know I can't get him back in an obvious way, so I'll do it in a passive-aggressive way. What you're doing is you're saying, God, I don't trust you to settle this. I don't trust you to fix this. I don't trust you to even this out. I don't trust you to handle it. I got to take it into my own hands and disobey a clear commandment about vengeance and do it myself. We stray from the recipe and then we complain when the food tastes like garbage. But if we just trust and go, God says he's got this, it'll go well for you. I thought of another one. When you read the book of James, now here's an outlandish, here's an outlandish command. You know when you experience trials? I don't mean when you're called to jury duty and you go to a trial. I mean like when you experience suffering, affliction, something happens to your life, it rocks your world, you're devastated. Count it as joy. I mean, have you been in James 1 recently? Count it as joy when you experience trials of many kinds. We can't go, oh, well, James was talking to a specific audience that were going through one very specific kind of trial. It doesn't apply. He said, no, all kinds. Consider them all joy. Count it as joy. Now, why would I rejoice over suffering? I'm hurting. Why would I be happy about that? This is because trials produce steadfastness. And if you value a steadfast walk with the Lord, if you value that, you're going to see the value in trials. The trials aren't fun, but the value, the joy, comes in when you see what it produces, a greater walk with the Lord. And he's saying, I know it's hard for you to wrap your heads around that. You need a, like a lot of wisdom. Ask. I'll give you the wisdom it takes to understand what I just told you. Ask, and you'll get it. But don't ask kind of doubting, like, I don't know. I really don't really believe it. No, you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it's true and ask the wisdom to understand how it's true, and I'll give you the wisdom. But it starts with faith. It starts with making a decision to go, I know it doesn't make sense to me. It's hard for me to put two and two together on this equation. But I trust that God's better at math than I am. So I'm going to trust him with it. And I'm not going to make a stupid decision about it. I'm not going to start taking matters into my own hands. Compromise on things that scripture is clear on. In order to try to attain things in life that maybe I'm not clear about. Who do I marry? Where do I go to college? What's up with that next job? What's happening tomorrow? What's happening next week? Let God handle the unclear things because he promised he would. You know, when this family is heading toward the promised land, the land that was promised to them, the seed would become more seeds, which would become more seeds and fill a land, right? Become a nation. That's a grand metaphor for the Christian life. Jesus said, I'm preparing a place for you. Invest in that house. Invest in that place. 
Store your treasures there. Don't store your treasures here. That's a promise. It's a promise that what you want is your best life later. Not your best life now. Invest in that time. And that should be, that should be the banner over our lives, over the decisions that we make. Am I derailing something? Because I want, a, I want a, a quick fix. I want to do something now. Or can I just trust that God has it? Faith is what is required for obedience. Because if you don't believe that what God is telling you is better for you, you're not going to do it. If you really believe he's the master chef, he knows how to cook, how to know anything about it. And if he says flip it like this and put it in the oven for that long, that's what I'm going to do. I think it's taking too long in the oven. It's going to burn. You start getting nervous, let it sit. Because that's going to be perfect. What we're going to do now is um, we're going to take a symbol of God's greatest promise. God's greatest, most profound promise to us. He's the greater Isaac. He is the one son that was sacrificed for us. And as we take this, what I'm hoping that we can remember is that no matter how messed up your life is, you can look back in your life and go, man, I've done a lot of derailments. <laughs> maybe oh, you leave here and you're like, my goodness, if I had the wisdom I had now, maybe I would have married someone different. Maybe I would have raised my kids differently. Maybe I would be living in a different place. Maybe I wouldn't have taken that job. Oh my goodness, how come I didn't hear this sermon 20 years ago? What's amazing about God is that God sees us in our affliction. And even though Hagar and Ishmael was a result of a big mess, God still stepped in with grace and put pieces together for them. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences, but it means God is there. And the greatest way in which he provides that for us is in dealing with our sin, our hang-ups, our mess-ups, our mistakes, our iniquities, our transgressions, whatever we want to call them. The things that we do that disappoint God, that displease God, that disobey God paid for that with a sacrifice so that no matter what our past looks like, it can be expunged, erased, handled, blotted out, and cast as far as the east is from the west, and you can start fresh with God. It's only possible through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, I pray that you would pray right now, accept him, repent, admit that you needed that, admit that you're broken. And ask him to step in and be your Lord, to be your Savior, to be your Master, to lead you. I want to ask the ushers to come forward.